Allegheny Mountain Radio is a rural community radio network in the Allegheny Highlands of Virginia and West Virginia, within the National Radio Quiet Zone. From its first broadcast as WVMR-AM in 1981 to the present and beyond, I hope to shed some light on our past 40 years of hyperlocal broadcasting. This is Unique by Nature. My name is Sage Tangway, and I am the station coordinator of WVMR in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. Last episode, we learned about the organization of the Pocahontas Communications Cooperative Corporation and the first broadcast of WVMR on the AM frequency. In this episode, we will delve more into those first years of programming. Here is DJ Norris Long on the early development of his show and other music programming on WVMR. So I came up here and, of course, we only had vinyl at the time. What is now in our country CD library room was our entire library. This room is roughly a quarter of our current dedicated library area, which is now mostly made up of space-efficient CDs. Of course, in those days, the library was made up of... LPs, which were greatly provided by... A couple of individuals who were predominant, well, one personal individual locally, uh, Clyde Waddell, had provided us such a great wealth of LPs in all genres, and it was just unreal to start with. And the other was the Gusto slash King Record Company in Nashville, and they provided us a lot of our older material in country and bluegrass. Well, I had been listening to bluegrass programming coming out of Roanoke, Virginia that was tied to Virginia Tech Radio. And there were two particular programs that I listened to. One was hosted by a gentleman by the name of Mike Haney. The second one was by Bill Vernon. According to Norris, Bill Vernon provided a lot of depth of information about the songs and instruments used, while Mike Haney's presentation was more easygoing. They were a huge influence on Norris's personal style. Came up with the name Bluegrass Reflections, reflecting on the lives, music, and social life of these artists. So I can be quite happy with trivial information about the person, like they celebrated their birthday yesterday. Uh, his father passed away last week. They just had a child. Those are trivial things that I can relate to my listening audience and bring them closer to the artist itself. And I, that's been one of the things that I've uh, been very proud of doing. People involved with the station tried anything that might attract community involvement in the broadcast. Here's Gibbs Kinderman and Pat Keller. Pat Keller, whose husband Bob was the county agent and had a radio show, she got involved too. And she became a social studies teacher at the high school. And she organized a a thing called Warrior News. And high school kids did a news broadcast once a week with reporters, anchor people, directors, you know. I had a class that was called Gifted, and they were smart kids. 
And uh, so one of the things we did was uh, to do, uh, start a radio show that we would collect school news and go down once a week and, uh, and would record it. Um, it. We had, at that time, we had a cart, you know, a little cartridge, with our theme music. If we made a mistake, we had to start the cart over again. It was about four minutes, so it took us a while. But we did the radio show, I can't remember how many years, and then I, it became a club instead of a class. And uh, it was fun for them, too. So that was one another part of what I did on the air. It was, it, was, uh, it was a time that was really exciting for all of us. It was really cool. And the people that were involved in it, I mean, they graduated from high school between 81 and 83, and it's still really vivid in their memories now. That was really neat. I did other shows, too. I did sometimes Sunday afternoon big bands, which I liked. Uh, Bob did something that uh, took a lot of energy. Uh, he would get up very early to go to the radio station. I'm not sure what time it signed on at the earliest, 7 or 6 or something. But he was Cowboy Bob, and he played cowboy music, western music. And then he would ask a question about the times, uh, questions that I made up, and uh, and then they would call him with their answers. It was it was It was fun. So it was a giant part of our life for a while. Got a chance to have Vista workers one year, and the Vista workers, they weren't young college kids, they were uh, housewives in their, I'm guessing they were in their late 30s up to the, about 65, and what they did was go around the community and talk to people about the radio station and about what they'd like to hear. And they started a program called the Senior Power Hour, which was for older people in the community and featured older people from the community. Did a lot of uh, interviews, oral history interviews and opinion interviews. Uh, and that was, that was kind of neat, too. You never would, never would see something like that on a conventional radio station. So basically, it was a a format that was really kind of open to anybody. If anybody had an idea and they wanted to try it out, we were pretty open to it. Rachel Tompkins also mentioned the importance of that local focus when it came to developing the journalistic aspect of the broadcast. You know, we need to try to figure out how to get people involved, get people engaged with the radio station. So it's not just us recording things and talking out there, but it's always trying to figure out how do you get how do you get people in the community to engage with the radio station and um, and and um, consider themselves part of it? The hot topic of the time back then was a movement to get the local rivers of Pocahontas County registered as wild and scenic rivers. piece of federal legislation that allows you to designate rivers in that way, it's prime, it, it doesn't have that many restrictions to it. But as with all kinds of federal legislation, people get upset about the fact that the feds might be coming and telling us what to do. And so um, it's one of those interesting issues that keeps coming up um, here in this region. West Virginia, and the majority of Appalachia for that matter, has a long history of conflicts over the use, ownership, and regulation of natural resources. Though Pocahontas County is not coal country, 
the forested wilderness is a significant source of timber. And like any rural area, there is a resistance to outside influence over such resources. Back then, tourism wasn't a big, wasn't nearly as big a part of the economy because Snowshoe was just getting started. And it was a dream more than a reality in terms of what it would mean to the county's economy, uh, the region's economy. These days, tourism is a massive focus of the local economy. You know, it's hard for people here to do controversy in public. Um, We tend to be, uh, people tend to be really polite and not, not offer up their opinions. And then there are a handful that have opinions about everything and offer them up all over the place. And that sort of discourages, I think, all the rest of the folks who may have some thoughts about something but don't want to engage in what becomes pretty quickly a polarized kind of conversation about either you, you know, either you're in favor of wild and scenic rivers or you're against it, or either you're in favor of the pipeline or you're against it. Well, people have a lot more nuanced views than that. And sometimes it's it's helpful if the radio station can do it to get people engaged in conversations that helps flesh out that nuance about the issues, that it isn't just all this or all that. But it's very hard to do. It's very tricky. And I think the stations, I mean, I'm pretty sure you guys still struggle with that today. During my time working for Allegheny Mountain Radio, the question of how to cover controversial topics has been a pressing one on a national level. What is the difference between fact and opinion? between news and entertainment. Even though Allegheny Mountain Radio does not directly cover federal issues, there is still plenty to get hot about on the local level. While WVMR had made strides towards inclusive programming with local youth and senior citizens, the early news department still faced resistance from some within the community institutions. It seems that the earlier split between the Board of Education, the County Commission, and the radio station had combined with some classic rural suspicion to make things a bit difficult. I asked Glenda Van Reenen how she perceived the task of early reporting in Pocahontas County. I could say a real struggle uh, at times. So in the beginning, as we tried to lay out uh, what all this would encompass, one of them, of course, was to cover meetings. So I went to all Board of Education meetings, and I went to all uh, county education, uh, county commission meetings. So it was very interesting, and it was a new thing, you know, not something that had happened in this rural county before. So, of course, you run into lots of resistance. And I found that a lot with the Board of Education at that time. They were quite resistant, and I don't know if I would say paranoid or what, but I was at that meeting. They were not very gracious. They were always suspicious of, you know, what I was going to say or what I would report. And um, sometimes it was very... It was very, very difficult because there would always be those, I don't know, little snide comments and that kind of stuff. And so you know that you are to be that blank slate 
and just sat there without an opinion or anything. Uh, so I have to say, sometimes it was very hard for me not to open my mouth, but I didn't. The county commission was also maybe a little suspicious, but I think the people that were on the county commission were a little bit more politically inclined. So I think they tried to cultivate a relationship with the press. Of course, Bill McNeil had been covering them for years and years. She's referring to the local newspaper, the Pocahontas Times. I find this point very interesting. You may wonder, what's the difference if there had already been reporting on these meetings? I encourage you to think about how you feel as you're reading an article that contains a quote. While the tone of the article is guided by the writer, there is also lots of space for you as the reader to fill in the gaps. When we read, we automatically editorialize. However, when you hear an actual recording of an actual person saying their actual words, some of that space disappears. When we listen, we are receiving so much more information than just the words that were said. And then, that tone is determined mainly by the person quoted themselves, and, of course, the person who edits the audio. I could go on for hours about how radio is an excellently intimate form through which to tell stories, but I simply want to bring this up to explain why those institutions might have been so suspicious and wary of radio reporting as opposed to the newspaper. Here's Glenda again. Bill became a great ally of mine, and we became friends. We never, or at least I never, I never saw the Pocahontas Times as competition. You know, we did the three to five minute blurb, and the Pocahontas Times did, you know, the in-depth story. So I never saw us as competition, and I don't think Bill did either. And in fact, you know, there were times when he knew something that was going on, like when the Allegheny Lodge burned down. He stopped at my house at midnight, pounding on the door to tell me that it was on fire. So, you know, we shared news sources and stuff. So we got along well, I think, with the Pocahontas Times. Pat Keller also experienced difficulty when trying to report on local happenings. Um, there was one place where I went into the fire station to get to see about any news, and they were nasty to me. Just get out of here. We don't need you. However, things would quickly change. When we come back... I don't think there's any concept that any younger person born from that date could comprehend. You know, this county lost lives. The flood of 1985 and how it changed WVMR forever. This is Unique by Nature. Whisper your name alone. 
asked all of my interviewees what they thought was particularly important or notable about Allegheny Mountain Radio. Here is Norris's response. I would say if I could just give one particular instance, I would have to contribute it to what this radio station served to the local area immediately following the flood of 1985. This station served as the communication link to the entire area that was affected. This flood is known as the Election Day Flood of 1985. It's also sometimes referred to as the Killer Floods of 1985. I asked Norris if there was any more recent local storms that might compare, might give perspective through which people who weren't there could understand. Younger people can't. For many years, we were using things like, if you were talking about something, you would say BDF or ADF. And that meant before D-flood, after D-flood. And uh, you would be looking for something. You couldn't remember if you still had it or not. But it was missing because it went out with the flood. It was such a traumatic event People were breaking down and crying. People were selling their houses at great loss. Um, And every time it rained, people would get extremely frightened or apprehensive that it was going to happen again. On November 4th, the rain began and simply didn't stop for hours. Being a radio station, we are lucky enough to have an archived report by Pat Keller that she produced the year following the flood. Be forewarned, this segment contains depictions of a natural disaster and references to the death and destruction caused by the flood. At approximately 4 o'clock p.m., Route 39, which runs along Knapps Creek, was closed. Neighbors were already helping. Fences were cut, and livestock was forced to higher ground, with some into main highways as the heavy rain continued. Telephone contact was last made in the early evening, and electricity went off shortly after that. The next 12 hours were a nightmare. As long as daylight continued, people kept a constant vigil, watching the raging waters carrying buildings, fences, and debris of all types. Many people left their homes to seek safety or went to second stories or attics as the waters rose swiftly. By daybreak Tuesday, November 5th, the rains had subsided. The devastation was massive. As one traveled in the area, the destruction was appalling. Asphalt was washed away in large sections. The roads were gone, allowing only one-way traffic in many places with power poles leaning. Near Huntersville, a car had washed into the waters, and one's worst fields were soon justified. Later in the afternoon, the bodies of two women and a small child were found in the fields within a couple of miles of where the car had swept into the raging water of Knapps Creek. The drive on into Marlton caused great concern, and the sight was shocking. The amount of damage in Marlton was almost impossible to comprehend unless it was seen. 
All of the 60 businesses were damaged, most extensively. About 95% of the over 500 homes were affected. Many were totally destroyed. Others were badly damaged. It's just, it's a mess. Everything's destroyed. Every business in town. The schools are, the school especially. Here, there's just nothing left for the kids. There's no books. There's no nothing. There's no classroom. It's just the town's a mess. Everything's gone. The water reached into the first floor of Pocahontas Memorial Hospital. The patients and staff spent the night on the second floor. On Tuesday, most were transported to the Greenbrier Valley Hospital. The Pocahontas Continuous Care Center had 18 inches of water. The next day, all patients were removed to Denmark State Hospital. Water rose in the Marlton Municipal Building into the first floor and covered the fire trucks and ambulances of the Marlton Fire Department. The Marlton Elementary and Middle Schools suffered extensive damage. The building housing the gifted and art classrooms was moved off its foundation and jammed against other buildings. While news of Marlton became known first, other areas in the county were hit hard too. In Cass, roads were washed out, homes severely flooded, and the post office partly damaged. I was able to speak to Dwayne Kennison, a former station coordinator, by phone. Though he wasn't living in the state at the time, he had family in the area. We lost, we lost Grandma Peggy in the flood, and I lost a great uncle in Marlinton through the flood too. Um, and we got when we rode into town, we like I said, we had to go up over the mountains because you couldn't come in from Stanton. The road was too washed down. And when we did finally get there, it, it just looked like a big bomb had went off. Uh, the street I grew up on would have been 6th Street in Marlington. And when I lived there, the houses were about 8 feet apart. And when I got there, uh, the house I lived in was gone. Uh, Digger Doug's house was gone. Now, mine washed down. My old house washed down and got stuck against the bridge. And there's a there's kind of a famous photograph of that. My, ho- my old house stuck against the bridge. Digger's house exploded. People who um, was other places, and they said that water just hit the houses there, and his just kind of busted like a bomb. Um, and there was houses on the other side of the street. The blacktop was picked up and moved. Uh, you know, mud everywhere. So it was, it was a bizarre scene. That's for sure. We had to go. My mom and my uncle and my aunt had to go identify Grandma over in Franklin. And uh, they had to, the only thing they could identify was a ring she was wearing. That was the only way. Um, her, it, her, her son from her second marriage uh, went, said he went in and got his wife out of the trailer and he took her out and he went back in to get grandma and said the water got so deep he couldn't so he climbed a tree and strapped himself in with his belt and he said the last time he seen her she was standing on the dining room table and the mobile home just lifted up did a little spin and floated away oh wow so yeah and um my uncle leo he drank that would be my great uncle, I guess. He drowned in Marlinton. He had a broken leg and couldn't nobody get to him. Um, his my aunt was not strong enough to you know get him up out. He was downstairs, and she made it upstairs, but she had no way to get him up there. So 
he we lost Lee. We lost him in the house right there in Marlington too. So it's I don't know. Everybody's got their own little story there, you know, uh, of the time anyway. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you for for sharing your your connection uh, to that that disaster. It was difficult to know the number of cars that were damaged or destroyed. One dealer estimated that over 500 were lost. The town of Marlinton was covered with mud, debris of every kind, cars, parts of trailers, as well as the smell of kerosene, gasoline, and sewer. People were in shock and wondering how they made it through the night with families still separated and the whereabouts of many people still unknown. Calls for help had been heard throughout the night, but as the water had gotten swifter, there was nothing anyone could do. Many people were in a complete daze. Despite the loss of electrical power and telephone service throughout most of the area, WVMR radio remained on the air continuously from 7 o'clock a.m. November 5th for 63 hours. The station had no telephone service, but over the next week, hundreds of messages were delivered to the station. Really pounded the county, and a lot of electricity was out, a lot of uh, telephones were out. There was a real communication problem. And uh, by some miracle, the power substation that fed the radio station was the only one in the county that stayed live through the whole time. And the station broadcast 24 hours a day. It was a daytime AM station, but it broadcast 24 hours a day. Gibbs himself was out of town at the time. The people that were here did a great job. I got, I got here about on the third day when they were all falling over <laughs> and, and you know took my part. But it was an amazing group effort to organize the thing and get it together. Bob and Pat Keller really took the lead in that, pulling the thing together. Here's Pat Keller, this time a recent recording, describing the initial response of WVMR. It was a terrible flood, and it killed people. But uh, at the radio station, we had electric, which was amazing. We didn't have a phone, but the man on the board, Bill Campbell, up the road had phone service. So he, um, uh, uh, so he would collect calls and bring them down to us. But we had we had the electric, which was very important. Now, we had a generator, but I'm not sure in what condition it was at that point. But anyway, we were on the air, and uh, uh, Bob, my husband, uh, was on the air all night, the first on the second day on Tuesday. And then the next night, I went up with our kids and Bob, and we were on the air all night, too. It was, it was tragically uh, an exciting time. Pat and others tell me that the station had a giant list of announcements where to get food and water, messages from people saying they were alive or asking if others were alive. Gibbs had once joked to me that they had considered calling the station WGPL for Giant Party Line, and it seems that in the wake of the flood, that's exactly what the broadcast became. One shared emergency phone call throughout the county. The effect on the public's perception of the radio station was enormous. Here's reporter Glenda Van Reenen. 
And I think that that was probably the major turning point for the radio station. Uh, you know, it kind of went from being new, people being suspicious, uh, you know, but yet intrigued uh, and liked hearing their neighbors' voices on the radio to becoming, I think, a lifesaver for this community because 85 was devastating. Excuse me. That happened so long ago. I'm surprised that it's still emotional. But it was devastating. And, you know, this county lost lives. And uh, the radio station stayed on 24-7. And it was mostly manned by, you know, all the people at the North End that who could get down there. And, uh, you know, it became a lifeline, uh, not only just reporting, so to speak, but people that were looking for people, people that were in need of food or water, or people that, you know, had, I don't know, a great need for um, um, baby food or, you know, that kind of thing. And the radio station, dealt with that 24 hours a day and stayed on the air and become, you know, I, I would say um, a life force for this community. And I think that it was then that the tide changed, so to speak, about the radio station, when all of a sudden everyone could see the value of it, the need of it, the importance of it, and um, what it could do, you know, for our community. And um, and it was. And I think after that, then it become much more uh, of an established part of our community, and has been ever since. I think, and has grown, uh, you know, in that role. But yeah, that was uh, a tremendous time period and upsetting and you know like i said we not only those of us who worked at the station but our entire community and the massive group of volunteers you know from the north end that came in and you know just answered phones and answered requests and found resources and all of this it was just a tremendous undertaking it was um uh, I think we all learned at that point. A lot of the programming was just to be there. So, you know, you're cold and it's dark in the night, but the radio station is there, you know. It's, it's your friendly voice. And people would bring notes or come in and tell us what was going on so we could communicate to the rest of the county what was going on. I mean, and some of the broadcasting was just lists of people who were alive, you know, this is Mary Smith and don't worry about me. I got out of my house and I met on the hill at Buckeye. Um, so it was, it was really intense and it really showed that it wasn't just a, 
entertainment medium or a casual information medium, it could really be a tremendous help to the community in time of disaster. And that was kind of the making of, of WVMR that made it a real institution in the community. Like I said, Bob stayed up, stayed on the air all night one time, and uh, he was walking down the street the next day, and a lady came up to him and said, you saved my life. <laughs> what? And uh, she said, I was ready to kill myself because things were so bad. And you all, you brought me out of it. I remember whenever I was, I was caught in the flood, six and a half foot of water through my house, and I was trapped on the second floor. As I was cleaning up my house after the flood, it was so important to be able to take a break at noontime, sit on my front porch, and listen to WVMR and finding out who is okay, who's missing, uh, where things were being distributed, where were collections being made. It, it really was something very, very important. I believe it was at least two weeks I returned to the air. And I felt that that was very, very important. While I was involved in stream restoration projects with my job, cleanup of my house, coming here to the radio station on a Sunday afternoon was a recluse to be able to get away from everything. At this point, the importance of having a local radio station was undeniable. Any of the tension that had existed between the community institutions and WVMR were washed away during the flood cleanup. And people began to be so cooperative. Even one of the men who was on the Board of Education one time had said, well, you elected us, just let us do our job, in a nasty way. And uh, he even showed up and wanted to say something on the air. So, uh, so that, was, that was exciting. It, was, it, it just took people to... Uh, uh, to be uh, to understand what the radio station could be, and that we never would have wanted that tragic flood, but it did. Like I said, the radio station came of age then, and a lot of people wanted to be involved. And one time I was looking at uh, some old records uh, there, and I was thinking, uh, I wonder if I could list all the people who have been involved with the radio station. And goodness sakes, it would have been. Um, uh, you know, hundreds. It was it was an impossible job. And that renewed support made a huge difference in the station's fundraising that year. That happened in the first part of November. Our fundraiser occurred the very first part of December, only four weeks after that. And that fundraiser turned out to be the largest that we had ever had at the radio station. I don't know if it's ever been surpassed since then, but uh, it made a big difference. My stand-up bass was completely covered by water in the flood of 85 and I remember the next day I took it out of the, the lower part of the house and took it upstairs, threw it on the bed and cranked up all the heat in the house. I mean to the maximum. But whenever I came back it was as if it was a giant cheese puff. It just went poof and totally fell apart. Luckily, there was a base for sale at one of the local elementary schools that had survived the flood. 
and that's the bass that I'm still playing. Uh, it will also survive the 96 flood. Had to have some repairs after that. But being here, part of that family thing of everybody that was involved with the fundraiser during that, that fall was tremendous. The amount of community response about bringing in food, uh, the attendance at our music in this room was phenomenal. And that's why we became more of a family throughout the community. When we come back, we'll talk about the beginnings of the expansion of PCCC and the radio broadcast. This is Unique by Nature. when you have excellent community engagement and support, funding is always a, a bit of a toss-up. On one hand, when you are supported by individuals of a community, you have the freedom to broadcast hyper-local content that might not otherwise be commercially viable. However, it also means that the operation is largely supported by everyday people who experience economic fluctuations as much as the next person. So, yeah, we started looking at other ways um, to increase revenue. So, of course, the uh, biggest success, I think, was uh, the cookbook, The Way Pocahontas County Cooks. And uh, Olive Alderman did that, and it was just uh, phenomenal. She would go, um, she had a time slot that she would come on or that she would tape you know, with a recipe or something once a week, I believe is how it started. And so, uh, you know, so we'd have this little, little mini show in the, you know, in the middle and someone, I do not know who, came up with the idea, well, let's just get all these recipes and stuff in and uh, let's do a cookbook. And uh, so Olive worked on that, getting people to send in recipes and all that. So we published the cookbook. I cannot even tell you how much money we made off of it. It it seems to me that we probably made seven or eight thousand dollars right off the bat, which was a huge hunk of money at that time. Uh, it's been republished several times since then. So then it was also uh, a look at going back and having books republished that have been out of publication for a long time, local ones like uh, The Last Forest and all that. And so we had those republished and sold those. And 
they're still in print and you can still pick them up at various other places. The way Pocahontas cooks was a massive early success, but it wasn't until the late 80s that the PCCC started to republish old books. I think the first thing we put out was a a republication of a book called The Last Forest Tales of the Allegheny Woods, which had been written by G.D. McNeil, who was the principal of Marlington High School. In in the late 1930s, it was published in an edition of 500 copies in 1939 and kind of disappeared. Um, And a friend of mine who was the assistant janitor at the Marlton Middle School at the time, Roy Shearer, was an auction hound. (laughs) He would stick around to the end of the box, and at the end, you know, they're like boxes of books that no one's going to buy, so they sell them for a dollar. And he bought a box of books, and in it was this last forest. And all the stories take place. The guy lived on the hill at Buckeye. I don't know, if you get to the top of the hill on the right-hand side, there's a sign that says Bicentennial Farm. That was G.D. McNeil's house. And the stories are all about going from there across what's now the scenic highway and down into the Cranberry Country, which I had... I mean, that's how I discovered Pocahontas County was in the 60s coming over here to backpack and hike. And Roy said, well, Gibbs really loves that. I bet he'd like this book. (laughs) It just knocked my socks off. So, I mean, part of what we were trying to do was promote creativity and promote the local culture. That was part of our, what we wanted to do. And by that time, the day-to-day stuff was, you know, Okay, this, the radio station's here. We don't have to worry about if it's going to make it or not. It's going to survive. And so we we decided to republish that book, and we printed a thousand copies, and they sold in like four months. What? And then two thousand copies, and they sold, and then another thousand copies. It really it was really a, something that people really enjoyed. It, it starts out before the railroad ever came to Pocahontas County, before the big, big-scale big logging came, and it ends up in the cutover days of the 1930s when all the, all the virgin timber was gone and forest fires and polluted creeks and stuff like that. And then the second thing we published was a book that his daughter wrote, Louise McNeil, who was the poet laureate of West Virginia, uh, a history in verse of this part of the country called Golly Mountain. And we'd sold 4,000 copies of, of The Last Forest, so I thought, well, this is a famous book. I mean, Stephen Vincent Benet wrote the intro to it. <laughs> you know, and if you order a lot of books, they're a lot cheaper per book. So I ordered 4,000 copies, <laughs> and there's still about 1,000 of them <laughs> sitting in that building thereafter. 30 years. (laughs) I didn't realize 4,000 books would be a national bestseller for poetry. (laughs) 
Many of the PCCC publications are similarly focused on the history and rural reality of Pocahontas County. Here's Pat Keller. I, uh, I did a lot with the uh, Hunter's Cookbook, um, and uh, uh, Elizabeth Martin did the typing, and then I, I helped put it together, and then also to get it published. Uh, I was looking at it the other day. Um, we did uh, those two books, and that, I don't know if there was another one. But anyway, yeah, I helped with that. I didn't do much with the CDs, but I'll jump into anything and then, you know, and learn as I go. We also, you know, we had a lot of uh, musicians. They've been the strongest backers in the radio station there were for the first 30 years or so. And we thought, well, here, here are all these great musicians, you know. If they wanted to go out in the world, they probably would have made good livings and maybe become famous, but they decided they loved it here and they stayed home. So let's give them some publicity, you know, get their music out there. So we started doing the CDs. In addition to being a fun activity, the publishing efforts by the station eventually became part of what qualified it for certain grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A part of it when, it, when it got really fully going, was that you were supposed to spend a certain percentage of your money producing, either buying programming from someone else or producing programming that could go out into the public radio marketplace. And that was the money that we used to finance a lot of the CD production. Mm. Our first success was a 13-week series called Howdy Neighbor Howdy that was uh, based on a, a local music show with uh, Garland Groves and Cheryl Ellison. That was really, really popular. Uh, and we just kind of, they did two hours a week, and we kind of boiled it down into 13 one-hour episodes and distributed it by cassette. <laughs> There's a box of the cassettes and that stuff I, I lent you. Uh, and then later on, we used the public radio satellite system or distributing the stuff on CDs. Sounds almost like a podcast. Next time on Unique by Nature... The community started growing from West Virginia Mountain Radio to Allegheny Mountain Radio. We'll learn about the expansion of WVMR into the state of Virginia. Unique by Nature is a production of Allegheny Mountain Radio, created, hosted, and produced by Sage Tangway. Videography by Danny Cardwell. Soundscape by Jake Heyer. We'd like to extend a special thanks to Richard Hefner and the Black Mountain Bluegrass Boys for the use of their music, the Pocahontas Opera House for use of their stage for socially distanced interviews, and to our guests, Gibbs Kinderman, Glenda Van Reenen, Patricia Keller, Rachel Tompkins, Norris Long, and Dwayne Kennison. For more information, visit AlleghenyMountainRadio.org or find us on Facebook where we post videos of some of these interviews. Hey.